0: you're listening to the liberty grace church sermon podcast for more information visit libertygrace.ca hey good afternoon everyone it's uh it's great to be here with you thanks for the warm welcome thanks for that scripture reading julius and for your worship brother um (laughs) my name is uh stephen I'm an elder over at uh, Maple Avenue Baptist Church in Georgetown, and so I pass along um, greetings from your brothers and sisters out in Georgetown. Um, If you don't know where Georgetown is, um, that is, um, our our claim to fame used to be we were the end of the line on on the go line, but then the Kitchener extension kind of robbed us of that particular claim to fame. If you're familiar with Weird Al, maybe you know his song, Weird, uh, Lame Claim to Fame. That was our lame claim to fame. So anyways, we'll just make Christ our, our boast. Um, look, I, I love what you're doing here. Uh, when, uh, when Pastor Darrell was telling me you're preaching through the whole Bible in a year, um, it's, it's such a great undertaking And uh, i got to tell you, I I feel a little bit of pressure. I feel like it's uh, a bit of a a burden on my heart to make sure that there's consistency. And so we're going to pick up where uh, Pastor Darrell left off last week. And and I think that means that we're covering the second act of Isaiah with some parallel passages in um, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, uh, and the the Psalms. And And I have to tell you, when I was reading through the passage... It made me feel, man, wouldn't it be nice if God could just like show himself? You know, just give a, a clear, undeniable sign, like a big booming voice that's heard all over the world by everyone at the same time that says, Attention, all mankind. This is God. The Bible is true. God out. Do you know how easy it would be for us to be able to have conversations with others if that was the case? Um, Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way. But uh, in covering this this part of of the Bible, I think we can start to consider um, the role of signs that uh, God gives and how they affect faith and salvation. And uh, we're gonna see that there's logical consistency to God's word. and, and even more largely, just consistency uh, more generally to, to, to the Bible in general. Um, and so even while the, we see the consistency of the Bible, um, I think we're going to acknowledge our own cognitive dissonance. I'm sure you're all familiar with cognitive dissonance. We're all pretty good at it because we're good at keeping two contradictory notions in our minds um, and coming up with an easy justification to reconcile the two. We're more than happy to just come up with an easy rationalization. Um, Here's an example. I'm on a diet, so I'm only eating healthy foods, but I'm going to eat that donut. And it's not because I'm not on a diet anymore, it's because I'm allowed to cheat on my diet. See how that works? Like, it's nice and easy. In, uh, in Georgetown, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's becoming a suburb. When we moved like 14 years ago, it was more of a small town. Now it's just turning into a suburb. So here's a good example that happens in, in Georgetown around densification. People are pro-densification because It's good for, you know, public transit. Uh, It's good for the environment. Densification is good. But, you know, a high-rise being built in my neighborhood, I'm going to fight that with everything I've got. Not because I'm not still good for, you know, still for all the good stuff, but just because, you know, how dare you and shut up. Um, I I can hold these two things in my mind um, because I'm good at the whole cognitive dissonance game, but you see, God, he's more of a stickler for consistency. He's not so amenable to our fuzzy logic, Um, which is what makes it kind of baffling after spending the first half of Isaiah laying out his case against the people of Judah. All of a sudden, in the second half, I don't know if you felt the same way reading it, there's so much hope In the second half, our uh, our church in Georgetown, we went through the book of Isaiah, the whole book, in about 18 months. We just camped out in Isaiah for a while, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, week after week. And it's just so relevant to the moment in time that we're in right now. Um, You know, the prophet lived and spoke of a time which comes at the end of an extended period of social and economic stability. It starts with the, the, the death of King Uzziah. And after his death, sort of the increase of geopolitical uncertainty based on the threat between these two warring superpowers, Assyria and Egypt. And the little kingdom of Judah is kind of caught between the two. And they're trying to broker for themselves like a role within all that, which ensures that they will be kept safe. And they do that through these really ill-conceived alliances. And all their efforts are wrong-headed. They just keep digging themselves deeper and deeper into trouble, because all they had to do was pursue God, not pursue their own ambitions of being a power broker in the region. And this is where God's consistency is really quick to blunt my cognitive dissonance, because when I read this, When I read Isaiah, I'm really quick to heap condemnation on the the people of Judah. You know, oh, ye of little faith. You know, why so rebellious? Why didn't you just trust God? Didn't you read earlier in the Bible, he made all these promises? Why couldn't you just stay faithful? And then the Holy Spirit gives me a little nudge, like a little poke in the ribs. And he brings to mind my own rebellion. How exactly would I have behaved any differently? Am I always quick to trust God when circumstances take a turn for the worse? You know, like where did my thoughts go when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine? Or when uh, inflation started to um, really bite? Did my givings to the church go up with inflation Did I keep them the same, or was I tempted to hold back just just in case? Is my trust really in the Lord, or is it in my bank account, my job, my house? Is it in my own ability to provide for myself and my family? Because I am aware of layoffs, foreclosures, and bankruptcies, I know they exist, Actually, I work for a credit rating agency. I I, I know all about them, and they are the very effective proof points that my home, my job, and my bank account are not trustworthy. The Bible calls them idols, just like the golden calves. They're false gods upon which I project all sorts of empty promises that they never make, and in fact, they're incapable of backing up. And to be honest, those are the the more savory ones, shall we say, the ones we can share in mixed company. But we know there are way worse idols that we cling to when times get tough. You know, alcohol, drugs, pornography, hookups. Whatever else it is that I crave when anxiety grabs hold of me and I seek comfort apart from God, those are the idols of choice. But there's consistency in the Bible, consistency in the way it discusses the sinful nature of all men and women. From the Garden of Eden to Liberty Village, it's all very consistent. From the fall all the way to 2023, it's all very consistent. But if that's the case, if it is all consistent, so how can we explain the connection between God's condemnation in Isaiah and God's promise of hope and reconciliation in the same book? I mean, Isaiah laid out the case against Judah like a skilled prosecutor. Why didn't he just go in for the kill? Seek a guilty plea? Why didn't he argue for the death penalty? If if you like courtroom dramas, I hope you read Isaiah 41 and enjoyed that. I mean, Isaiah plays out how it might look if we tried to plead our own case in God's courtroom. If you didn't read it, spoiler alert, just plead for clemency, plead for mercy. But it does feel like Isaiah describes two different Judas in this book, two different nations that are separated by a vast chasm, like a grand canyon, like, two, like a Venn diagram, just two circles that don't even touch. So what's going on? Sometimes Isaiah speaks of Judah as the land of the condemned, And sometimes he speaks of Judah as the land of hope. Which is it? Is Judah an immoral, corrupted, hopeless land condemned to exile, or is Judah a blessed land of hope and promise with a glorious future? Are they the same geographically? They feel as far from each other as the east is from the west. And then, as you continue to read through the book, Isaiah shows that these two Judas are, in fact, connected. The two nations are connected kind of like by a bridge, like the Golden Gate Bridge, just emerging out of the fog. This bridge joins the land of condemnation and the land of salvation, and it keeps them connected and and keeps the whole book consistent. And as we heard from Julius in Isaiah 53, as we read it in the outset, we know Isaiah 53 is our Golden Gate Bridge. But first things first. Based on what Pastor Darrell covered last week, we need to resolve what happened with Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah? He had a, a showdown. He was the king of Judah, and he had a showdown with the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and his crafty field commander, the Rabshakeh. And that was in Isaiah 36 and 37. And it's not often that we are given witness to such a great response to a threat, right? Like a strong leader taking a strong stand, standing firm in the faith. This is what we want to see. Great men rising to the occasion. When his country is on the brink of being annihilated by a far superior military power, Hezekiah does not flinch. He calls upon the Lord in this glorious prayer oriented towards God's glory. He puts his trust in God's promises, and God responds in such a powerful way. He wipes out the enemy forces, and he sees to it that Sennacherib is felled by his son's sword. I mean, it's dramatic, it's triumphant. But how does that fit in? I mean, if the Bible is consistent, how is this consistent? If Judah is, such a, uh, is, is led by such a strong, virtuous king, why was it under God's wrath to begin with? Why all the judgment and condemnation? Well, Pastor Darrell hinted at it. He alluded to Hezekiah's bent towards pride. And we're gonna see that sinful impulse rear its ugly head once more in Isaiah 38. I mean, and you see the same episode in 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32, what we see is that Hezekiah's righteousness is not all that consistent. It wavered, it faltered. And so there aren't too many historical events like this that get three different biblical accounts. You know, we get multiple accounts of the life, ministry, death of Jesus in the Gospels, the central events of the Bible. And even there, I mean, critical scholars are quick to point, the, point out the differences and say, well, these are contradictions in the Bible, which is kind of problematic for a preachers trying to make the case that God and the Bible are very consistent. But let's consider this. If someone was to interview each and every one of you on the way out this afternoon, just ask you what the key points of the sermon were, we would expect some inconsistencies. I'm not talking about inaccuracies or contradictions because you're all paying close attention, I can see that. I mean, different emphases, because we all have different circumstances and things hit us differently. But the main points are going to be the same and all accounts are still going to be factual. And so it is with a witness account that's recorded in the Bible. What we read in the accounts um, of Hezekiah is that he's on his deathbed. That much is clear. Similarly to last week's episode where Jerusalem's on the brink, here the king himself is on the brink. And similarly to what we saw when faced with the might of the Assyrian army intent on destruction, Hezekiah once again here, he turns to the Lord in prayer and asks to be spared. And in response, God not only grants the king an additional 15 years to his life, but he's given this incredible, unforgettable sign, an observable, undeniable miracle. God realigns the cosmos for this sign. The sun reverses its course for a spell to turn the shadow back on the sundial. It's astounding and it's loaded with intentionality and meaning. The Scottish biblical commentator Alec Motier notes, just as the sun was about to set on Hezekiah's life, now it returns for a time to prolong the day. It's incredible. And I want to acknowledge something outright here because I know that a lot of us either have or will just pray fervently for someone's life to be spared or prolonged. And as this passage makes clear, I mean, God can miraculously heal the sick. And we also know that God is good and kind and loving But God's purposes are not always clear to us. And it is according to his will and his purposes that God acts. And ultimately, it is for the good of his children. But that doesn't mean that it always aligns with our own conception of what good is in the moment. And in this situation, God has a purpose for Hezekiah. This is not just to placate one man. But I also want to consider Hezekiah's prayer Because in Isaiah 38, verse 22, he asks for a sign. And as I said at the outset, I've often longed for a sign like this. I mean, maybe you have also. Just a a tangible sign from God that lets me know that I'm not crazy. Just a gesture that he could show to someone I love that I'm trying to witness to. And more often than not, we're just let down. So why doesn't God give us a sign when we pray for it? He's able to. He just did it for Hezekiah. Well, the truth of the matter is that signs don't change hearts. God he doesn't save people through signs because people do not come to faith by witnessing these signs. In John 6... Right after a whole series of miracles, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. Jesus walks on the water. Still the crowd asks Jesus, hey, how about a sign? It never ends. Signs are never sufficient. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. But in John 6, verse 30, we read, they say to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That's what they ask for. And Jesus responds to them, I am the sign. You just don't want to see. So, of course, they don't love that. John 6, 41, we're told they grumbled about him and said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? (laughs) How is he saying now that I have come from heaven. Signs don't change hearts. They just don't. They may encourage our faith if it's already there, but even that is momentary because we have bad memories and fickle hearts. It's a bad combination. Consider what Hezekiah does, for example, with the 15 extra years that he's granted. We keep saying the Bible's consistent. So Isaiah 39 After witnessing this interstellar miracle where God plays with the gravitational pull of solar systems, Hezekiah goes around boasting about how important he is, about how he defeated Assyria. He receives a a little bit of flattery from a foreign dignitary, and immediately he invites the Babylonian delegation into his palace and shows off how powerful he is We're told he shows them his whole armory. Isaiah 39, verse 2, there was nothing in his house and in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Our hearts are so easy to fall prey to flattery. Our pride knows no bounds. We're fooled like this into believing that we're responsible for our own salvation. Twice Hezekiah was an inch from death There was nothing he could do to restore his health. There was nothing he could do to stave off the Assyrian army. All he could muster was to turn his face to the wall and pray. And in response, the God of the universe wiped out 185,000 men, reversed the orbit of the solar system to extend his life. And it's not long before Hezekiah is showing off just how he was able to pull off such a stunning victory by the might of his army to who? the Babylonians, I mean the kingdom that is going to destroy Jerusalem and enslave his people. All along, Judah thought that Assyria was the threat, and they could not fathom that another lurked right behind them, Babylon. Hezekiah threw wide open the gates to the enemy, and by his foolish pride, he gave up all that God had granted his people, the people God led out of slavery from Egypt and to whom he granted their own land. Now they will be taken out of their land in exile and enslaved once more by an oppressive master, Babylon. See, we ask for signs, but our faith, our salvation is not born out of signs. Signs don't change hearts. We dismiss signs, we forget about them. We rationalize them a million different ways. Our cognitive dissonance jumps in and quickly fills in for our pride. Rather than accept the fact that we find ourselves in difficult circumstances due to our own rebellious impulses, due to our own sinful nature, we refuse to to see the fact that God is the one who lifts us up out of the mire and places us on solid footing by his mercy. Instead, we rewrite the whole story in our minds. We give ourselves the starring role and we give ourselves the credit. Signs aren't the bridge across this chasm. Signs of God will not reconcile the fact that we sit under God's judgment and yet enjoy his mercy. So what is the golden gate? What what is it that bridges this gap? Isaiah takes his time. He dismantles a couple of other false leads. It's not our own merit. It's not our inherent goodness. It's not the rituals and empty acts of worship. The key to our salvation is not from within us. It's not our works. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's Paul's favorite refrain in the New Testament. And he often quotes Isaiah to make his point. In Isaiah 58, the prophet lays out his case against grand shows of piety, where people go around showing off how godly they are by fasting. And so they ensure that everyone hears their hunger pangs, their groanings and discomfort. But the problem is all the while they're taking advantage of those who are actually hungry, those who are too poor to buy food. Isaiah 58.3, the Israelites ask, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves And you take no knowledge of it. Just look how humble we are. (laughs) And then Isaiah relays God's response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, your fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Isaiah exposes the hypocrisy. It's a persistent hypocritical impulse, to make great shows of piety, from these Israelites in his day, to the Pharisees of Jesus' day, to the Catholic Church of our day, despite the consistent and clear biblical reality that we are not saved by our works, we are not saved by our fasting, by our elaborate prayers like the Pharisees like to do, or by the rites, indulgences, and Hail Marys like the Catholics do, Performative faith is fake faith. It may fool those around you, but God sees into your heart. So what is the key to our salvation? We're left with this nagging question going through the book of Isaiah. What is the golden gate bridge that bridges the chasm between our being under God's judgment and our receiving God's love and mercy? do you see what's at stake here? I mean, this is the key to one of the most confounding aspects of Christianity. How do we reconcile God's wrath and God's love? As we heard in Isaiah 53, we see it in there. And all throughout, Isaiah left hints, a trail of clues. But in Isaiah 53, it all comes in to focus. Is it a big, strong king like Hezekiah who will stare down the invading army unflinchingly? No, we're told he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's rather the opposite of the kingly finger, figure. And in fairness, that is the consistency of the Bible, isn't it? The hero's never the big, strong guy. It's usually the scrawny little guy. Not Goliath, but David. Like Godfrey said earlier, not Superman a man of sorrows. But how? How can this man of sorrows, this suffering servant, reconcile God's judgment and mercy? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. This all comes so perfectly into focus. He will take the punishment for our rebellion. He pays our debt. The man of sorrows takes on God's wrath. And can we boast that we contributed to this accomplishment? All we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, Isaiah 53 rolls back the fog and reveals this bridge that maintains the consistency of the dueling realities of our guilt and our salvation. Without Isaiah 53, we're left only with the knowledge that we all in our sinful state deserve God's wrath, unable to prevent ourselves from sinning further, unable to make restitution for the impact of our sin, unable to do anything but receive the punishment we deserve, the death sentence that awaits us at the end of this life. And talk about cognitive dissonance. We all know where this life is leading, every one of us to the grave. Yet we live our entire lives in denial until the very end, until the brink of death. But talk about a sign. 740 years before he was born, Isaiah wrote about this suffering servant, this man of sorrows, and he gave hope to the God's people here that they would not be abandoned in their state of condemnation He would lead them through the chasm over into the state of salvation. This right here in your hands is the sign. The Bible is the sign that God has left for you, pointing the way back to himself. Whenever you're looking for a sign for God, please open up the word of God. And this is what he wrote about God's harrowing unimaginable plan to give up his own son as a sacrifice it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put on him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring his he shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his land out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied He makes intercession for us. He sits at the right hand of God, effectively pleading for mercy on our behalf. And for Isaiah's audience at the time, this was a future promise of hope, hope that God would lead them out of exile, out of Babylon, back to their promised land, but also a greater hope that he would lead them out of condemnation, across the chasm into salvation. And for you and me, just as Christ proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. Our debt is paid, our sin forgiven. The punishment was borne by Jesus, and our death sentence was nailed to the cross. You see, God does not leave us without a sign. Paul argues that all of creation is a sign that proclaims the glory of God, so no one has an excuse for not believing. But God gave a mighty sign that was seen by hundreds, and their witness accounts are recorded in four different statements. In the middle of the day, the skies were darkened, the curtain was torn in two, the earth shook, the rocks were split, tombs were opened, Christ died. And after being dead for three days, our Lord Jesus Christ was raised to life. The tomb empty. That we may know that he sits in power even now at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. And so as Paul says in Ephesians 2, this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you hear that, Hezekiah? Do not boast in your own ability. Do you hear that, Liberty Grace? Boast only in Christ and His finished work of salvation on the cross. I just want to leave you with one more thing. If you're not a follower of Christ today, you can turn to Him, even now in the quiet of your own heart, confess your need for Him, Confess your your need for a new heart stripped of prideful impulses, a new heart that beats to the rhythm of God's promises of redemption. Only Christ is worthy of your faith. And if you still wish that God would give you a special sign, don't feel discouraged. Thomas was like that. He wanted to touch the resurrected Christ, before he could truly accept what he already believed. And hear how Jesus replied to Thomas to encourage you in John 20, verse 29. Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us in our condemnation. Even though it is our sin that caused the chasm between us, even though we rejected you, you did not abandon us without a way back. Through your Son and his harrowing death and his glorious resurrection, you have bridged the chasm that we may return to you And I pray that many would recognize our need for your grace and for Christ in whose name we pray now. Amen.